as the title of this Sunday School gives, faith, which is faith that confounds. Um, in many ways, that is the nature of faith, right? Um, a faith that confounds the senses. Uh, where the way the Lord tests our faith often is in ways that, um, maybe not all the time, but sometimes it, it goes against logic. It goes against logic. Um, it certainly, it always seems to go against the way we feel things should go at times uh, when we're being tested. Um, you know, one story in my own life that continues to uh, remind me of the faithfulness of God is when we adopted our daughter, Alice, and uh, what we went through doing that. Um, it was interesting the way that came about, but uh, one of the big roadblocks to adoption is often the cost of adoption. And like many parents who decided we're going to do this, you know, we did take it one, take it one step at a time. And it was just neat to see the Lord providing as time went by, as we patiently waited on him. Faith was certainly tested. And we even, Emily and I, went and visited a financial counselor before we got started in the process just to, for wisdom and advice and guidance on how can we make this, you know, ideas on how we can make it happen financially given our situation and I have to be honest to that guy the message we got is look some do something else because you you haven't got the the means to do this certainly we didn't but God provided and it was a testing but life as uh, Beale notes here in in this chapter here he reminds us that life is packed full of all kinds of inverted realities Things turned upon their head, uh, upon its head, especially in regard to the theme of faith. Um, that that well-known phrase, no pain, no gain. You know, that's an inverted reality. But it's true in so many areas, not just in the weight room. Um, how we apply it in many things. You know, piano practice, you know, practicing anything, you know, no pain, no gain. Well, what we're going to do this morning, um, we're going to focus mostly on one text, Hebrews 11, okay? The subject is faith, after all. And that's where he's honing in uh, G.K. Bill in this particular chapter. We're in chapter 5 of his book on redemptive reversals. Um, and it's another chapter that, that goes against human wisdom. We're going to go through some stories here that... Hebrews 11 pulls out, and as we look at some of these familiar th stories of faith of some people, uh, be reminded of, again, how these things are not logical, on, at least on how we think with earthly eyes how things would turn out. God has his plans. So turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews 11, and we're going to quickly read through this chapter. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convention, the conviction, let me get my glasses on, there we go, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. 
By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was committed as righteous, God committing him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she was considered since she considered him faithful who had promised therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? 
For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what do we have that they didn't get to see, but the risen Christ himself? Amen. Well, this chapter, this wonderful chapter in the Bible, is commonly known as the Old Testament's Hall of Fame of Faith. But... I'm sure many of you notice as we read through this, and you've noticed this before, some of these names of folks don't seem to have been the more faithful type. You know, Gideon comes to mind, and the way he was hiding in, his, in, in the ground and threshing and, and the different types of signs that they were always asking for. Uh, these personalities are not they're not heroic for the most part. There are a few, but for the most part, you wouldn't probably put the, the title heroic on them. They have one thing in common for sure. They had faith in the midst of distress, persecution, and tribulation. But also, they are, and this is, I think, the point that Beale wants us to grasp here as we go through this. They're average, unextraordinary men and women, but yet they all enjoy an ironic reward. You know, contrary to how the world would see things turn out as they lived in faith. So we're going to walk through some some concepts and some topics here as we work through this, this amazing chapter on faith. Faith that confounds the senses. Well, first is faith in the midst of unbelief. Um, Noah. We're going to focus on Noah in this one. So, you know, his story is one of faith that overcomes un overwhelming unbelief. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Noah. You know, there was no visible threat of flood. None at all. His senses would attest to that. And there would therefore be no earthly reason to build the ark in such a massive structure that it was. Had anyone ever seen anything like that before in, in terms of its enormity? And certainly regarding a ship. That, can, that alone attests to, attests to his 
amazing faith. You know, it's estimated there were several decades it took him to do this and build that ark. Um, a very long time to receive the insults that he had. I'm sure there were times where he doubted things and went to the Lord and was encouraged. His father, Lamech, named him Noah because he had hope that his son would bring bring rest to mankind. You can read about that in Genesis 5, verse 29. His name means rest. Noah's name means rest. And in Genesis 5, 29 says, and speaking of Lamech, his father called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our hands, from the work and painful toil of our hands. What it talks about. Well, maybe it was that perhaps Lamech thought Noah was that promised offspring. It could be. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Rest was needed, as scripture attests, to the wickedness that was in the land those days on the earth, the, the violence that was always in them, as the scripture speaks. But very ironically, the the promised blessing of rest that would be given through Noah would be through the destruction of the world. That's how God would bring about that rest, through the destruction of the world. Hebrews 11.7 talks about that. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He feared God. That's why he did this. He honored him. And by this, it reads, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That same righteousness that comes to us even by faith. He did not believe what his eyes were telling him. Again, no earthly reason to build this ark. He trusted in God's word. And the same should go for us as we are reminded of what Noah endured and what his faith attests to. Trusting God's word despite what the world says. Despite what they would tell you to see with your own eyes. But seeing with your own eyes and beholding these things from an earthly perspective, that's not the nature of faith, is it? It isn't. How about faith in the midst of hopelessness? We see this emblematic of Abraham's faith. Um, Called to do things, called out of his land that he was, I'm sure, comfortable with. Uh, We got to hear a little bit of that recently from the pulpit. You know, he was a man well-to-do and called with his wife to go not knowing exactly where he was going. He also did not trust what his eyes alone could see, the promises that he received. Can you imagine what it would have been like to receive the promise from God that he had received? What an amazing promise that was. Uh, Would you even dare to believe a promise like that? We see this in Genesis 
Sybil, several different passages here, and I have them bolded here so you can turn into a Bible if the text is too small to read it. But in Genesis 12, it says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the next chapter, chapter 13, God says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can, can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And later in chapter 15, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. A man whose wife in his old age were well past the conceiving years of having children. And yet he had the faith to believe because God had given that to him. And he nourished that faith by going to God. That's how you do it. We'll talk about that later. Now, I asked that question, could you believe such promises if God said that to you? And I think some of us would dare to say, yeah, you know, if God audibly said these things to me, I would believe. Maybe you would. Maybe you would. I, I don't know. But there's a story also later on in the New Testament Abraham's involved in the story, and it has to do with that rich man, the contemporary of Lazarus. And that rich man, in the agony and fires of hell, asked Abraham to warn his brothers of God's wrath in hell, saying they, but, but Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so tell me, if you heard God tell you these things, would you still believe? It takes that faith that God gives and nourishing that faith and coming to him when you're struggling in it to endure in that faith. Even if someone should rise from the dead, they, they would not be convinced. Recall how Abraham had asked God to let Ishmael be the heir. Let, let the son of my wife's maidservant, let him be the heir. He struggled in his faith at times. Indeed he did. But God said, no, but Sarah will give birth to the son of promise. In Romans 4, verses 19 and 20, it reads regarding Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He went to God with his questions, with his struggles. And like often we see the psalmist, he ended those prayers with him. 
and offering up glory to God. Growing strong in his faith. You know, despite the conventional wisdom regarding Sarah's age and his age, he believed. When Isaac was born, when he had grown, once again we see Abraham's faith being tested in a very mighty way when he was told to offer him up as sacrifice. In Romans 4, verse 21, it tells us that Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised, he was, was able also to perform. And what was that? Well, we read it in Hebrews 11, that God could even raise him from the dead to accomplish his purposes. That was the faith of Abraham, given to him and nourished by him. You know, even when God's word appeared contradictory to the senses, Abraham persisted in faith. Now, how many times have you been confronted with an issue, some circumstance, maybe it's a long one, that goes against what your flesh is telling you, that this is just doesn't make sense, but you are holding on to that truth in God's word. You know, most of us, even for as we see in Hebrews 11, we won't always see that reward in this lifetime. And that, again, is a testing of our faith, knowing that it will come someday, even if it's in that, that heavenly country. Abraham was a great model for us to continue to look to. Let's talk about faith in the midst of worldly pride. Something that certainly would have tested Moses, who's the subject of this particular section here. You know, Moses, um, his life is a case study in perseverance. And the very ironic ways that God rewards faithfulness. You know, Pharaoh, just some of these ironies in his life, even at a very, very young age, Pharaoh had ordered his death, along with all the males, had ordered his death, yet, very ironically, it was Pharaoh's own household, his daughter, that drew him out of those waters of death. God working his plan for his faithful. It's a picture of what Moses would do later, leading and rescuing the people through the Red Sea. Eventually, we understand as we read that Moses would forsake those pleasures of Pharaoh's household to be counted among God's people. Hebrews 11 talks about that. Certainly, worldly wisdom would tell you to count yourself blessed among Pharaoh's household. Maybe you could do things from Pharaoh's household and go out and be numbered among the people of Israel, these, these miserable slaves, couldn't you be more effective in Pharaoh's household? You know, who knows what may have gone through his mind. Moses was faithful to where God was directing him. In Hebrews 11, it depicts uh, Moses' personal attitude about life. In verses 24, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called 
the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather be to mis be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Uh, so he considered the reproach of Christ greater, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to that reward. And it's that reward that he was looking to in faith that gave him the strength to go on. He endured earthly suffering. For that's how he looked to that reward that was coming. That's what gave him the strength to endure. And that's the same thing for us, friends. Looking to that reward as we endure, to give us the strength to endure. You could say that, that Moses lived by the belief in what Paul would later write in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Certainly, the life of Joseph speaks to that as well. All our lives speak to that. All believers' lives speak to that in some way, in some degree, in terms of looking to that reward. All things work together for good. How about faith in the midst of wrath? I'm going to skip that one and not go put it on the screen. But I want to talk about it here in my own text. It's a section that uh, Beale focuses on, and he's speaking more about the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, also known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those faithful contemporaries of Daniel who stood up against that evil regime. Uh, they stood up against the most powerful man in the world at that time. The most powerful man on earth in, in King Nebuchadnezzar. This golden image, if you remember the story that he had erected and told everyone to bow down to, 90 feet tall. A golden image to 90 feet tall. You can imagine how much gold was put into that thing. But... It was the response to Nebuchadnezzar that's so impressive here. And this is, this is amazing faith, friends. In Daniel 3, it says, Our God, these men speaking together, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They knew what would happen. They knew it. And they didn't even know for sure that they would be delivered from that fire on earth. But they had that eternal perspective. That reward that they were looking forward to. That glory in heaven that would wait them. They knew in one way they would be delivered. And that God also had the power to deliver them if he chose to. But their faith was resting in God's sovereign purposes. Whatever that would be, even if it meant they would suffer in the flames. That is a mighty faith. Rather than trusting their eyes and fearing those flames... They placed their confidence in an invisible God. 
I can imagine what it would have been like for them before that, knowing why they were being summoned. When this thing, the edict went out and they had made up their minds well beforehand that they would not serve that idol. Going to the Lord, asking for strength, perhaps asking for the words to say if summoned before the king, and what mighty words God put in their mouths. Did Nebuchadnezzar remember those words at the end when he ended up praising God? That is the faith that they, they resembled. There's also faith in the midst of tribulation. You know, this is, we see this in the life of Daniel. Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their contemporary in Daniel. When you consider what the Lord accomplished in and through Daniel and the faith that he exhibited, you know, how would you describe the character of Daniel's faith? It seems ironic that you would want to call it simple, but that's what it was. You want to call it heroic and powerful, but truly what it was, it was a simple faith that Daniel possessed. Simple. A childlike faith, that same childlike faith that Christ calls us to. A childlike faith in his heavenly Father's purposes, that those purposes are incontestable. Despite the outcome. And that faith gave a, him a profound rest in the Lord. That enabled him to do the things that he did. You know, I remember, recall the, the scene after Nebuchadnezzar had died and his son Belshazzar is king now. And they're drinking from the, the, the silverware, the cups of the temple that they brought in, just mocking God. And, you know, Daniel comes in and he gives an answer to the, the riddle, the, the writing on the wall. But if you remember the, the promise that the king had given to anyone who could translate that writing on the wall, and Daniel's attitude was one like, keep your riches for yourself. It depicts to me a, a man, an old man in his faith who had learned many things to find rest in the Lord despite what would come. He, he didn't seem interested at all. He seemed to shun it. Like, I can't believe I'm dealing with this again. He had a childlike faith. He had a simple faith that rested in, in the Lord. Hebrews 11.33 speaks of a faith that stopped the mouths of lions. And, of course, we understand this to be Daniel. Now, he may not have known precisely of the plot that was put out there to entrap him before King Darius but he knew that there were many that were vying for him to be humiliated, to be brought down, perhaps even destroyed. But even knowing so, he remained faithful. He openly worshiped before the Lord because it was the right and natural thing for him to do. That's what he did as a, a, a faithful servant of the Lord. That's what he did. 
just as much as it was natural for the ungodly around him to covet and bear false witness against him, it was natural for him to worship the Lord. He rested in him. Now, it's quite possible that the faith later on that we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 34 of putting armies to flight, that that refers to that episode with Elisha, the prophet. Remember that story as he's there with his servant and that threatening Syrian army that surrounds them. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6 where this is talks about. Those, those Syrians wanted to capture Elisha. They wanted to capture him because of his prophetic abilities. What was happening is these secret plans of the Syrian king were being made and known and revealed to the king of Israel. And the Syrian king's advisor said, there's this prophet. It's basically telling everything that's happening that you're talking about in private in your room. And so he sent an army to go capture Elisha because of his prophetic abilities. Well, jumping ahead in the story, we see Elisha's servant standing there with him, terrified as, and very desperate for his life as he saw that surrounding army, that surrounding Syrian army about to take them, probably going to kill that servant. He knows that he wouldn't be very necessary at that point. But Elisha's servant is recorded as saying, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And here's Elisha's reply, his faithful reply. He says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, that would have been very hard for the servant to comprehend since they were surrounded by that massive earthly army. But because of the faith that Elisha had and the prayer and faith that he offered, they could see that invisible army of the Lord surrounding them. He prayed for their, that sight to be given to his servant to see them. And they saw, as it's recorded, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That, this invisible fighting force, what did it do? It came down and it struck that, the, the army with blindness. And eventually they just went back. And they never returned again not in the lifetime of the king. But that was given to Elisha and to his servant as a testament to their faith, to be able to see these things that earthly eyes cannot see. Indeed, there is that spiritual realm around us even now that exists, that, that warfare that exists around us even now that we can't see with our eyes. But we know by faith it is there. We believe it and know that it is there. We forget about it. We forget about it. But surely it is there. Those in Hebrews 11, as it says, of whom the world was not worthy, they were distinguished from the world by their faith in those things that they couldn't see with earthly eyes. 
They confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They, they wanted that better country, that reward that was being prepared for them, that city. And we, as Christians today, we have to have that same perspective, that heavenly, earth, uh, heavenly eternal perspective, that we will also receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken as we endure. And we do this also as we bear the reproach, reproach of Christ, as we've been called to do. We are to put our trust only in what God's word says. And that must be our true reality. It's going to be opposite of what the world says most of the time. You know, we're not going to be able to see these things physically. There are a couple of categories that Beale notes in this chapter. Categories of ironic redemption in Scripture. Ironic redemption. Uh, and you can see these in, in Hebrews 11. The first one he notes is that believers being delivered in a more overtly miraculous manner. You know, Daniel. Those lions' mouths being stopped. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being able to be thrown in a fiery furnace and yet not even a hair is burnt on their head. Miraculous ways that they were saved. But the second way that we see this ironic redemption because of faith is in a more natural way. You know, the way for, for Joseph, you know, absent the, of course, the dream interpretation part, but just what he endured by faith in what God brought him through. There is a more natural way these things roll out. Either way, God's the, the sole author and the cause of the rescue, regardless of the, the means he uses to do it. But the more ironic blessing, these two examples that were given, a, a supernatural providence or a more natural providence, the one that we most often see is the natural one. You know, that's what we live in today. It's a more natural way that God redeems us. If we get to see, you know, the victories this side of heaven. We don't see those, those miracles like that. They're far and few between. We, we have Christ. We know him by name. We know what he did and suffered. We have these details, these Old Testament prophets and Men and women of faith didn't get, have that, that clearness of picture that we have. We have the Spirit in a powerful and mighty way poured on us. Yes, they possess the Spirit as well. But in the administration of the new covenant in our lives and the way it's lived out and the faith that we have, most often our rescuings are in a natural way. Is despite the miracles that we want to see. Well, I need to wrap up now. Um, there are some principles um, that uh, Beale gives there in the the last section of this of this text. But you know, throughout this entire book, Beale says that he has been emphasizing the importance of Scripture 
in our lives as Christians. He said that many times, the importance of Scripture. Many of us know the significance of Scripture, but we aren't consistent in reading and studying it the way that we should. You know, I mentioned a couple of times this morning how the faith of these men and women were nourished in the Word of God, nourished in going to God. And one primary reason, Beale writes, that many Christians don't feel the daily necessity for God's word is that we, and he says, especially Americans, we are too often enthralled with the expectation of the sensational rather than the uniqueness of the ordinary. And those natural means that God uses, that natural providence that he rules over. You know, if our Bible reading doesn't give us a regular shot of adrenaline, he says, you know, we become very easily discouraged. We're tempted to forgo that consistent reading of his word for that nourishment. You know, sometimes our reading, he says, doesn't seem to, to lift us up. We get bored with it. Other times we don't understand what we're reading. And we don't even know how we could apply what we read to our lives. We have deluded ourselves into thinking that only what is exciting, you know, according to our cultural standards, he says, that only those things are worthy of our attention. You know, if it goes against the culture and is in a mighty way, well, that's worth our attention. But that's not what we often read in Scripture. It's, it's not all battle stories and miraculous res resurrections and lifting from the dead. And it's ordinary faithful people, or the faith of people, often. He said, Beale writes, we should view scripture reading as an ordinary yet healthy task, like taking vitamins. He says, it may not always intrigue us, what we're reading like some Agatha Christie mystery novel. But it builds up an immunity to sin as we read with a patient faith. And as a result, this, this immunity that we develop fights off sinful decisions. You're stronger to resist sin. Although we may not feel scripture working in us, we must believe that it is doing an invisible spiritual work. And over time, the consequences, they will be exciting in the very real sense. As we grow and mature in our faith, resting more and more in the Lord, seeing things with spiritual eyes that we didn't have so much as when we were younger in our faith. But we... As the psalmist says, we, we learn to treasure God's word in our heart. And we do that because we don't want to sin anymore. We don't want to sin against God. Our faith is so much tied up into that desire to live a holy life before the Lord. And we can't do this, friends. We can't do it if we're not regularly in the word of God, studying it, consuming it. It's been as much of a theme throughout this book of Beals as much as these ironic overturnings of human wisdom. 
that theme of being students of the Word of God. All right, let me go ahead and close this.